Last week, or the last time I was uh, speaking, we began a series entitled, I Believe. And we're going to look for the next few weeks, for the summer, uh, we're going to look at some things that we believe as Christians. There are a number of things that are foundational truths that um, we need to, from time to time, reinforce and remind ourselves of why we believe what we believe. Let me ask you a question. Do you really, in this day of science and reason, do you really believe that there is some invisible God floating around somewhere, zapping things into existence? Really? Do you really believe that? What would you say to somebody who asks you that question? Because, yeah, I do. I believe in a God that is invisible and that He's out there and that He, by the word of His mouth, created all that there is. To some people, that sounds just as fanciful as little green men on Mars. How would you go about proving that God exists? How would you go about answering those who are skeptics and say, I can't believe that as enlightened and as intelligent as you are, that you would hold to such a fanciful notion. Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 that, well, even as Peter was writing to the Christians in the first century, 30 or so years removed from Pentecost and from the time of Jesus, he was reminding them, scoffers will arise and they'll give you grief. They'll say, oh, the idea that Jesus, that, that man who was put in a tomb, that he will come back again from the dead, the idea, the very idea, where is he? Where is he? You say he's coming back. Well, it's been 30 years. Where is he? He hasn't come back yet. I think you guys need to quit being so superstitious and, and get with the program. And if that were true in the first century, just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus, we're now 2,000 years since that time, and scoffers have 2,000 years worth of ammunition, ammunition to say, what are you guys thinking? Really? You really think that some man who lived in the first century is going to come back to life and, and still come back? And, and if he's going to do it, he wouldn't have done it already? 2,000 years? Come on. Really? Is there a God? Well, the Bible affirms it right from the very first, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We face today a new form of atheism. In fact, they call themselves, and, and the term has been coined, the new atheist or the new atheism. And what they believe today is, and what that has reference to, if you ever hear that, it, it has reference to an, a more militant atheist than we have seen in the past. These new atheists have in mind that Christianity needs to be challenged. Instead of just coinciding, getting along and existing together, it's their mission to challenge and defeat Christianity. They've come to the conclusion that Christianity shouldn't just be tolerated, it's harmful to the world, and therefore the belief in God needs to be opposed. 
And so they are very active right now in criticizing and exposing by their argumentation or trying to the, the flaws of believing that God exists. In fact, there are, ironically so, in Revelation, uh, it talks about the, the horsemen, the four horsemen. Uh, atheism has coined their heroes as the four horsemen of atheism or the new atheism. Actually, it's now the three horsemen of the new atheism because one of them just recently died, and I don't guess he's an atheist anymore, but um, they, they do have a very militant approach. Just recently, um, Richard Dawkins said this. He said, if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant. He further said that person is stupid or insane or wicked. If you don't believe in evolution, you are ignorant, you're stupid, you're insane, or maybe it's just that you're wicked. That's the message that he's preaching. Not too long ago, there was a Reason rally in Washington, D.C., where atheists from all over the world gathered together and <clears throat> promoted their, their belief. And when uh, Dawkins got up to present his point of view, he said, listen, you need to challenge religious people. You need to embarrass them. You need to make fun of them. You need to hold them in contempt publicly, to which he got an arousing applause. You see, that's their mode of attack. That's what they want to do. And so here we are, gathered together on the Lord's Day as a group of Christians who are trying to follow Christ, and we're meeting together as they have done for, Christians have done for 2,000 years. And as we're assembled here today and have to go back out into the world tomorrow, how do we face this kind of opposition, and what do we deal with, or how do we deal with it? Scoffers will come, and maybe you have some at work already, and if you don't, this new atheism will finally cross your path, and you'll have people hold you accountable and say, how can you, in today's enlightened, educated, civilized society, how can you believe in some invisible God floating around in the sky somewhere? You've got to be kidding me. That's like Easter Bunny kind of stuff. Well, I think that there are reasons, valid reasons, and this is not exhaustive at all today. But last week we talked about, <clears throat> we talked about, I believe, the Bible. And I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and we gave evidences for that. Well, today we don't want to just presume that we believe in God. I don't want to just start with that presumption. So I want to... Uh, Talk about why I believe in God. And like I said, these aren't exhaustive, but these are sufficient reasons. And one of those reasons is just simply the moral ramifications if there is no God. I don't believe an atheist has the, the ability to deal with morality. Now, they may say that they do, but they don't. What I mean by this is who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong? How do I know if 
killing is right or killing is wrong? How do I know if stealing or lying or how do, who gets to decide those issues? And, and how did those things get decided? If there is no God, then it would seem to me that ethics would be autonomous and individual. I get to make my own rules. If I'm just the product of uh, evolution, if I have no purpose, no design, if I answer to no one, then listen, why should I let anybody make rules for me? I'll live my life as I deem best. Who gets to say, no, you can't do that? You have to live your life according to what we say. There's no right, there's no wrong without God. Everything becomes subjective. Everything becomes, well, it's right or wrong because that's my opinion or the group's opinion. But think of how absurd that is on the surface, really. You know, I was, had a Bible study with a young man, uh, well, a couple years ago, and he was telling me how he doesn't believe in God anymore. He, uh, and I've, I think I've shared this with you before, as a matter of fact, but he said, uh, you know, he's grown, he was raised in a Christian home, but he had reached the point where he just doesn't believe in God anymore. And I said, um, then how do you determine what's right and what's wrong? And he said, well, you, you can determine what's right and what's wrong because of the way it makes you feel. I mean, you obviously know that murder's wrong and, and these things are right. And I, but, but how do you, who set that standard? And he said, well, society sets the standard. If society as a whole says something is okay, then it's okay. And I said, well, let's go back to Germany. What about what the Nazis did to the Jews? Germany, the society, said that that was okay. Was it? His answer to that, he saw what was coming and the inconsistency that he was going to be involved in, and he said, you know, I, I don't really know. Are you kidding me? You don't really know whether the Holocaust was right or wrong? He said that in order to be consistent, but it's absurd, isn't it? Of course it was wrong. And at the Nuremberg trials, they appealed to a higher law than just these guys that kept saying, hey, I was just following orders, I was just following orders. There was a higher law that they were accountable to that didn't excuse them from doing what society said that they could do. How are we going to determine right from wrong? Somebody says, well, you know, atheists can have morals. They, they can, you can function, at, but it's not as simple as just saying do what you know is good. Because good can't be defined apart from God. Consider this. Are we going to do what's right, what's good for the individual or the group? You know, a person says, we don't need God. Just go about and do good. Love each other and, and do, treat each other right. Well, how do we do that? Do we do it for the individual or for the group? You see, that's not always the same. If there was a scarcity of food... And I'm hungry, and so are my children. What should I do? Well, do I do what's good for me, and I just eat it all? Or do I do what's good for my family, and I, you know, portion it out so that everybody could have some? You see, I don't remember anybody calling a lion evil because that male lion comes in and takes his lion's share 
and the cubs have to wait until it's over. Nobody calls that lion evil, but could I do that as an individual? You see, it, we, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, let's just do good to everybody. Well, what is good? Good for whom? Your, yourself or for the group? That's one consideration. Another consideration is do we seek what's good now or what's good later? Well, for, for example, what have you ever, my mom used to say, Steve, when you have money, it'll burn a hole in your pocket. Have you ever used that expression? She said, money burns a hole in your pocket. I might once, if I came across $10, well, I've got to spend that $10. I'm going to go find something at the store that costs $10 or less, and I'm going to buy it. Well, do I do what's good now, or do I withhold now and do without and save money and reserve it for something that would be better or good later? Which one should I pursue? Immediate good or good that I can have later? Which one's best? See, it's not a matter of just saying, just do good. Well, what kind of good? Are we going to do good for the individual or good for the group? Are we going to do good for now or going to do good for later? And what about short-term good and long-term good? Which one are we going to choose? You know, short-term good. Chocolate cake for supper. Short-term good. Boy, I'd like to have cake and pie and all those kind of things. That would be short-term good. Or should we pursue long-term good? Better cut down on the sweets and go a little light on that so that you can live longer and be healthier longer. Which one is, you see, we can't make those decisions. Everything just becomes relative. Nobody can say, well, this is right. What we end up with without God is a situation that we saw in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. There was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I used to, as a younger boy reading that, think, boy, wasn't that nice? People were pretty good back then because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's not a compliment. Because what some people deem to be right is far from right. If there is no God, if there is no one who's given us a law that says this is right and this is wrong, then everything is up for grabs. And it's individual. You decide what you want to do. And who am I to oppose your choice? I, I think of the chaos, the anarchy that would result from such a position. There are tremendous moral ramifications if there is no God who said this is right and this is wrong. And without it, we can't figure it out. We have no basis other than my own opinion. And everybody has one, and we're left with anarchy. Here's a second reason why I believe in God, and that is simple, just design. I mean, I look at the universe, I look at the human body, I look at the design that is, uh, exists in this world, and rational thinkers understand and realize that Every design has a designer. That's a no-brainer. If I see a piece, of work, uh, a piece of art that somebody has drawn up here, 
I know somebody did that. When you walk down the hall today and you look at all the stuff that's been done in the hallway for VBS, that didn't happen last night because we had all the doors open and the wind was really whipping through there. Somebody did that. Where you have design, you have a designer. Brother Thomas Warren, years ago when he debated um, uh, Matson, uh, a renowned atheist, he had a prosthetic hand that he brought, and he, he talked about the complexity of it and, and showed all the things that it would do and how it would close and, and all the things, and they even had it like a, it looked like a, a hand. And he showed that, and he asked Matson, could that have just happened? And he said, of course not. Then Brother Warren took a human hand and described in detail the circulatory system within it, the skeletal system, the skin, and how it functions, the ligaments, the muscles, the bones, and it's far more complex than that prosthetic hand. Nobody would choose a prosthetic hand over the real thing because it's far more limitations. And he said, could that have just happened? And the man said, yes. That's inconsistent, to say the least. If our bodies, our world, our universe exhibit design, then there has to be a designer. And it's simply stated in Hebrews chapter 3, if you have your Bible, open to Hebrews chapter 3 and listen to what the Lord says in verse 4, or the Hebrew writer. He simply says this, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. There's your argument for design in Scripture. And it is, you don't have to have a doctor's degree to understand. Every house is built by, if you go out and you see a house, you know someone built that house. And he said, just like we have enough sense to know that when we see a house, someone built it. When we see this world, this universe, we come to the same conclusion. It has a designer. Without God, we're saying that the precision of this universe is mere chance. We're saying that the complexity of the human body, of the systems within it, we're saying that the complexity of the, the, the whole circle of life that you see in this world is just happenstance. And that's just too hard to swallow. You talk about believing in miracles... That's a greater miracle than to believe that there was an all-powerful being who said, let there be light, let there be. And then the third reason, and we'll close with this one, is that, um, well, I believe in God because Jesus was and is a historical figure. You can't deny Jesus. We can talk in the abstract about God, some invisible being out there, and, and reasons for why we believe that he's there and for his involvement in our affairs here. We can talk about that in the abstract, but Jesus is concrete. John 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, it tells us this, That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to this earth and showed us, yeah, there's a God. 
this is what he looks like. This is how he talks. This is how he behaves. This is what he likes. This is his attitude. This is what he would say. He lived among us. And then there's that empty tomb. It's a nagging problem for some folks. How did that tomb get empty? We know that this historical Jesus was placed in the tomb. We know that there were guards placed around. We know that that tomb is empty. We know that people who were afraid all of a sudden became emboldened. And those disciples who wouldn't stand with him, who were afraid to die for him and ran and fled, all of a sudden now they're willing to lay their life down. For what, a lie? You're going to die for a, a, a lie? These men were emboldened by the resurrection of Jesus because it was fulfillment of what Jesus said. And it's beyond the ability of mere man. I think one of the most powerful proofs for Jesus is found in Acts 2. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. When Peter and the eleven are preaching on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days since Jesus left this world, people knew who Jesus was. They were his contemporaries. And listen to what they say in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered up by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Just stop right there. I want you to see what he says. Here's a sermon about Jesus. They've put him to death. He's raised again. And Peter stands up to the very people that had put him to death. And he says, this Jesus that you killed, the one that lived among you, you saw him, the one that you know good and well performed miracles and wonders and signs in your midst, as you know, God has raised him up. If that were not true, he couldn't have finished his sermon. Can you imagine someone coming in today and say, oh, okay, I'm here to lecture today about something? It's a common misnomer. It's a common, uh, excuse me, it's a common mistake that our society has bought into. And that mistake goes back to 9-11. On, on September the 9th, or September the 11th, in 2001, there was no attack on the United States. Those buildings didn't fall down. That's just media hype. It's not true. They couldn't sell that to us because we know better. We live through it. There's no denying. And if somebody tried to say that, you would just say, ah, that's foolishness. That's nonsense. You'd get up and walk out. Peter is standing to a crowd of people saying, Jesus did miracles, signs, wonders in your midst as you know good and well he did. And 3,000 souls respond. They didn't walk away. They didn't say, you don't know what you're talking about. We're not buying this bill of goods. They knew. 
Jesus is proof. That empty tomb is proof that God, there is a God and that he has done what he planned to do. Listen, as we bring this to a close, and like I said, this is certainly not exhaustive, but these are reasons why I believe in God. It's rational. It is not or unintelligent. It's not illogical. It's not insane, and it's not wicked to believe in God. In fact, the belief in God will change and conform people's lives into a way that makes this world a better place. You remove God and the restraints that God has given us from this culture and this society or from the world in general, I don't want to live in that kind of world. That's a wicked place. If there is a God, and if the Bible is the Word of God, then how should we receive it? John 8 and verse 48 says this, You can reject me and my words. Jesus says that. If you don't want to believe, you don't have to. You can reject me and my words. But I'm telling you, the words that I have spoken, the same shall judge you in the last day. If you're here this morning, and you're not yet a child of God, if you've not obeyed what Jesus said to do, if you're, well, a a believer but you haven't done what he said. You need to obey him. If he's God, he makes the rules. And what Jesus said is, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you haven't done that, do that this morning. We'll assist you in that. If you're a child of God already but unfaithful, you need to, you need to pay attention to the words of this book. Someday it'll judge you. Yes, there is a God. His word is true. Someday we'll be judged by it. If we can assist you in making your life right and being prepared for the day that when Jesus comes back, we'll pray with you or we'll baptize you into Christ this morning if you'll come as we stand together and sing.